This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. This is a unique episode. It's called Notes from South Africa, and I'm giving my reflections on my two-week trip to the continent, the motherland. I talk about apartheid, colonialism, and some stories both humorous and hair-raising. Finally, I ask whether the concept of Christian missions has been stolen from black people. But first, some announcements and reviews. I want to draw your attention to our most ambitious initiative yet. It is called the Witness Foundation. The goal is to help financially fund black Christian ministry. The way we do that, our goal, is to raise a million dollars. This will start a new endowment, and we're going to use interest off of that endowment to Uh, sponsor financial grants for Black Christian Ministries. I won't go into all the details now. You can listen to a special uh, short episode of Footnotes, just seven minutes long. It's already up on the feed. You can get more details there, as well as visit uh, my Facebook page at jamartisby1, facebook.com slash jamartisby1, and get more details there. But needless to say, it is a monumental, huge endeavor. I think it's a game changer, though. Um, we're going to talk about money and dependency on money in Black Christian Ministries a little later in this episode, but I wanted you to hear that from me once again. Visit our website, thewitnessfoundation.co, thewitnessfoundation.co. You can make a donation today, pass it along to friends, church members, churches. We need all the help we can get from anyone. All right. Next, we I announced a book giveaway last episode, and the book is called Evangelicals, Who They Have Been, Are Now, and could be. It's an edited volume with uh, Mark Knoll and George Marsden. Uh, David Bebbington's in there, but um, also I have a chapter in there called Are Black Christians Evangelicals? And so I announced this book giveaway on the last episode, and we have a winner. So I entered all the names into this random name picker online, and the winner is Brittany Wiley. Congratulations, Brittany. You win this book. I will send you an email so I can get your mailing address. Congratulations. Thank you so much for supporting Footnotes. And if you didn't win this time, no worries. We're going to have more. This is actually our second one. The first one was a book bundle, the Racial Justice Starter Kit. Congratulations, Daniel. He won that one. Now, Brittany wins this book on evangelicals. And there's going to be more. So stay tuned for future giveaways. Now, on to one of my favorite parts of the show, reviews. So we are up to 244 reviews. That's from 235 last time. I want to read two this week. The first one comes from Nice Will. Nice Will, who writes, When I listen to a lot of today's cultural and political discourse, I end up feeling hopeless, anxious, tired, I appreciate that Jamar reflects on serious issues without stirring up ill will. I leave the podcast feeling encouraged. The only critique I have is that it should be entitled Tisbits. All right, Will, that that was a great review right up to that point. It just sounds so cheesy to me, but I appreciate the input. On to our second review. This one is rather poignant. It comes from Widow in Training, and it says this. I have been listening to and enjoying footnotes for months. I look forward to every new episode. I find Jamar Tisby's insight on current events, especially historical context, and his presentation of black perspectives extremely helpful as a white person. Footnotes has also helped me as a parent. I'm a widow raising two white children on my own among several people with racist perspectives. I'm thankful for the witness for giving me words to share with them when they hear racist comments or even as pre-teaching about white privilege, systemic racism, etc. I want to raise kids who care about their brothers and sisters of color who see and do something about injustice. Already, 
My eight-year-old wants to be an international attorney, working for justice for refugees. And I know the conversations we've had containing information I've heard on footnotes have contributed to his heart for justice. So thank you, Jamar, for your good work. You've got a listener for life. Well, thank you. Um, that was, uh, thank you for sharing. You didn't have to. And I really appreciate that. Um, it really encourages me and I'm sure many others to hear that you are raising your children to care about other people and doing good in the world. So keep those reviews coming, folks. Always appreciate it. And maybe you'll hear yours on the next episode of Footnotes. Now, let me tell you about South Africa. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. South Africa 2019, in God's providence, I was able to go back to the motherland on the 400-year anniversary of when Europeans brought forcibly brought Africans to the coast of colonial Virginia. It's a very important year in history, and this was my first time to sub-Saharan Africa. I've been to Egypt before. This is my first time to sub-Saharan Africa. And what was it? This was a trip um, through Mission to the World, which is the mission sending agency of the PCA. I have a long and fraught history with them, but we'll talk about that later. Um the overview was our party was a party of six. We flew into Johannesburg and spent about a week there. We visited a game reserve and had some very close encounters with all kinds of animals. Um, maybe I'll get a chance to tell you about that later as well. Then after spending some time in Joburg, as they call it, we flew into Cape Town, which is all the way on the other side of the country, right on the Atlantic Ocean. Absolutely beautiful setting. And we attended something called the All Africa Conference, and it was really a conference for Reformed and Presbyterian Christians from across the continent. So let me tell you a little bit about the people who I was with, because they are integral to this journey. First of all, major shout out to Miss Barbara Jones. She is a black woman and a faithful, passionate Christian who has labored for almost 20 years in predominantly white Christian organizations. And let me tell you, she has the emotional and spiritual scars to show for it. But she has come through, and um, even though for a long time she, she sort of uh, survived by keeping her head down and just doing really good work, she's at the point in her life and in her career and in her walk with the Lord where she's found her voice. And she confronts racism in the workplace and internationally, and she uses her voice to advocate for others. That's how I got on this trip. That's how this whole trip came together. It was through her vision, her leadership, her prayers. And so, huge shout out again to Miss Barbara Jones. She did a phenomenal job. She's a prayer warrior. She's a spirit-filled believer, and I'm so glad we got to know her better on this trip. Uh, but it wasn't just her. We were with a team. She brought uh, Akemini Uwan, Micah Edmondson, Christina Edmondson, and her husband Tyson plus me. So this is a really unique group. We are all black, we are all Christian, and we are all Presbyterian by conviction, if not denominational affiliation. And that's really a sad statement. As I mentioned before, I have a very fraught history with uh, the PCA and, and similar sort of theologically conservative Presbyterian denominations, uh, uh, same with the rest of our group as black Christians who care about racial justice, it's very difficult to survive in these white, majority white Presbyterian settings, um, which is a very sad statement because these are groups that pride themselves on believing the Bible and believing that it's God's 
inerrant and infallible word, and yet um, it's hard to make room at those tables for people from different racial, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds. So uh, nevertheless, we were there with this entirely black group, and and we met some incredible people. So shout out to Cameron, David, Vuyani, Dambuzo, Onyi, Lindy, Victor, Brian, Mina, Toboho, Keo, and so many more. If I didn't mention you by name, it's not because you're not important, it's because my mind is slow. But if you're listening, you all made the experience for us. Thank you so much. We're grateful for your time, your willingness to share uh, your painful experiences of racism. We're thankful for your insights about South Africa and the faith, and of course, for your love and your prayers. We can't wait to see you all again. Now, I cannot underestimate to you how rare and important it is to travel with an all-black group, especially in Christian settings. So as I mentioned, we went as part of Mission to the World, and uh, uh, what 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 we were told is that there are about 700 missionaries with this organization. Exactly one of those missionaries is black, and there's one more in the pipeline. That's startling, but it's not unusual. Most mission trips I've heard about or I've seen, those are white people going to places where black and brown people live. But in their actual groups, in these actual mission groups, there's very little racial or ethnic diversity. Um, So going with this group of black Christians meant we were able to get a running start and not spend a whole bunch of time talking about the basics of race and racism and learning to trust one another along those lines. We all had this understanding of the image of God from a biblical perspective and an informed perspective on U.S. history and current events to inform our outlooks on race. Didn't mean that we always agreed, but we did have a sort of baseline shared understanding. And one of the most powerful experiences actually happened just among our group. It wasn't even interacting with other people that we were meeting in South Africa. Uh, there was one night where we just had this intense prayer sh- prayer session, and it was very private, so I won't share much, but I can say it involved anointing with oil, uh, spirit-filled prayer, and tears. And for me in particular, this was an enormously powerful moment. For the past three to four years, my relationship with Christian communities has been one of pain because I've been in these predominantly white Christian communities and there's been so much um, trolling, so much betrayal, so much hurt caused because I'm trying to speak out about racial justice and other people are pushing back. So it's been really hard to trust. It's been really hard to be free with other Christians and with God. Uh, But this was a moment when I could do just that. And it was powerful because I remember at the Joy and Justice Conference, I got so close to to just this cathartic experience of, of kind of letting out all my tension, all my frustration, and pouring out my heart to God with, with shouts and with tears. I was so close to that at the Joy and Justice Conference, and, and, but it was so new, and it had been so long that I, I just I didn't feel the freedom enough, the, the safety enough to do it. Well, that was different with this group of people, a group of people who you trust deeply, who share your faith, who share your concerns, and I was able to just weep, and um, it was it was it was freeing. It was uh, it was like knots being untangled and loosened in my life and in my soul. So I think that is going to be one of the most powerful experiences I take away from the entire trip. And it was totally unplanned, totally spontaneous, and only happens in authentic Christian community where you love and trust one another under um, under the the faith, uh, 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 your faith in Jesus Christ, which unites you. So it was just this beautiful experience, and thank you for everyone who was there with me and everyone who was praying for me. Um, I needed that. I needed that. But having an all-black group also meant something else. It meant that we could focus on race relations in South Africa. And we needed all of our energy to focus on this because it's very complicated. So uh, let's talk about race relations in South Africa. 
this was really one of the things that I was most excited to learn about was to uh, understand because of their history of apartheid, what race and racism looked like in South Africa and see what we could learn uh, and take with us to the United States. So um, first of all, when we flew into Joburg, we stayed with white missionaries and we are very grateful for their generosity, uh, letting us stay in their houses, feeding us, keeping us company, all those kinds of things. Um, they're lovely, godly people, but it gave us a very different perspective. Um, it's a little jarring, especially for someone who hasn't been to sub-Saharan Africa before. It's a little jarring to arrive in South Africa and then interact with so many white people at the start. Um, again, not an evil thing or a bad thing, but you're on a continent where black people are the vast majority. And so um, to interact with so many white people was just something that that I had to wrap my head around. Um, and so this is not a white missionary thing, but one of the things that I noticed was that everywhere we went, there are gates and walls and fences and locks. I'm talking about houses and buildings and parking lots. Everywhere you go, it's locked down tight. And it was unclear of whether we were locking others out or locking ourselves in, who was afraid of whom, those kinds of things. So that was very different just culturally. I mean, we've got in the U.S. our own forms of conspicuous security. Um, but Another thing that stuck out was it seemed common that if you were middle class or above, you would have the help. And so that's a term that 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 means the domestic workers who help you around the house. They help with laundry and dishes and other household tasks. But these were invariably black Africans um, working in, uh, you know, <clears throat> affluent homes that happen to to be owned by by white people. And so it felt from a U.S. perspective like a throwback to the 1950s and 60s, and you remember that movie, The Help, with all its problems and issues, but but that dynamic of sort of wealthy white people employing black people in the home. But I was also torn because although there was that dynamic, when you sit back and you think about it, you know, these are honest jobs, and these are paychecks, and they help people make a living. And so from a certain perspective, you know, this is part of the economy. And um, yeah, would drastic changes in the structure of the economy make it so that more people could make a living and not just um, a, a subsistence style living? Um, maybe so. But that being said, um, domestic service in and of itself is nothing to frown at. Uh, what we were looking at mostly was just the dynamic between race and class, and that's something that's very tricky to 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 manage in a Christian way and in a just way. So again, that was just one of the things that stuck out. I don't really have um, a, a a particular you know opinion on it. It was just very different than what we were used to in the United States. Um, we weren't just in Johannesburg though. We also got to go to the townships. And so in South Africa, the um, townships are basically synonymous or similar to the inner city in the United States. And so, um, you know, it's kind of code for black and poor. And it was this way by design. The architects of apartheid engineered it so that all the black Africans would be forced from the cities and the centers of power and literally marginalized them by building townships around the cities in which many of the neighborhoods are really just tin sheds, tin shacks crammed against one another with millions of people packed into a tiny geographical area. It's very sad to see. Intense poverty, intense concentrations of population, and it's that way because certain people wanted it that way. So we got to go to Soweto, which I believe is the largest township in South Africa, and we visited the Hector Peterson Memorial. I'll put a link in about who Hector Peterson is, but in the Black Freedom Struggle, 
Um, that term, historians use that term to refer to not just the civil rights movement in the 20th century United States, but the, the broader movement for black freedom generally, not just in the U.S., but internationally. And so, so Hector Peterson was essentially a martyr of the black freedom struggle. struggle. He was a child when he was shot and killed in uh, protests in South Africa. And there's this iconic picture of him being carried away by another black South African with his, um, I believe it's his sister, uh, running alongside them. And so uh, check out that link, learn more about this this tragic history. Uh, apartheid uh, just ruined so many lives through violence and brutality and repression. And we just got a taste of it uh, visiting Soweto, the Hector Peterson Memorial. I also learned about someone named Steve Biko. I'd, I'd, I'd known about him before, but, but hearing more about him um, interested me in learning more about the black consciousness movement in South Africa and Africa in general. And I really think, I mean, for me, learning about the black power movement in the U.S. and now the black conscious, consciousness movement abroad is really helpful to understand, to hear voices of, of black independence, of black pride in a healthy way, in, in the midst of an environment that has constantly denigrated us for our skin color and our culture and our background. And uh, I think, you know, thinking about black power and black consciousness in relation to Christianity and religious and racial identity, it's what I'm working on with, with my dissertation, but also just my work with The Witness or footnotes in really trying to understand what it means to be a human being, not simply in relation to white people or whiteness. I think that's the challenge for a lot of black people. And what I saw in South Africa was that it's not just a challenge for black Americans, but for black Africans as well. Um, God created us fully in God's image, fully in God's likeness, and we don't have dignity or worth simply based in relation to white people or whiteness. So that's bonus. That's a whole other topic. Um, didn't mean to get off track there, but I think it's important. So so we went to Soweto. We attended a church there. Of course, the music was incredible. Uh, the preaching was really solid. Meeting all the people there was incredible. And it was in Soweto that we first heard on a repeated basis this phrase that just warmed our hearts. And it was simply this, welcome home. Oh, I'll never get sick of hearing that phrase. Um, and they meant it too, from what I could tell. Uh, yeah, some of them were selling stuff and they were excited uh, to get on our good side to maybe uh, get us to buy some things from them. But there were plenty of people people there who had nothing to gain from us and, and, and they weren't asking us for anything. And matter of fact, we didn't have anything to to offer them, but but they welcomed us like family and they said, welcome home. And that was so beautiful and so special. And I hope and pray that as many uh, black people from America get to go to the continent and hear that, it'll warm your soul. So that was our time in Johannesburg. After that, we traveled across the country to Cape Town for something called the All Africa Conference. It was a first time event. And um, all I'll say about that is, uh, if, <laughs> is um, it is risky, I think, to foreground Reformed and or Presbyterian in, um, in one sort of Christian message. Uh, so, so again, this conference was specifically for Reformed and Presbyterian folks, so it's fine there. But uh, we we were dealing with this same dynamic in the U.S. when the witness used to be called the Reformed African American Network. One of the things that 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 we often talked about was, you know, how do we expand this thing to include more Black people? And when you're thinking about that, and really any other racial or ethnic minority group, Reformed is not really an asset. Uh, most people don't really have a category for reformed. They don't know what it means. If they do have a category for it, it's like reform school has to do with like prison or incarceration. Um, or if they do know what reformed is, it's probably not a good connotation because of all the racism that's involved. And so uh, I see folks clinging to this label and um, 
so here's 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 an example. So we had these small groups at the conference, and it was so interesting to me. So there were about half the conference was was Black Africans, and so there was a, a, a good bit of diversity there, and and Africans from all over the continent, and so they're speaking different languages, they're from different countries, and we were in a small group that met each day of the conference with. Um, you know, varied people from from different parts of the continent in that group, and uh, uh, our group leader made a, a a really stunning reflection. I thought that that just put things in perspective. He said that in his um, native tongue, in his tribal language, there wasn't really an equivalent word for reformed, as in reformed theology. It was a it was a word that he he had to sort of talk around and really unpack. But then the next day. We had heard another presentation and we were reflecting on it, uh, and, and, and the concept of covenant was really central in that talk. And uh, the same person said, you know, in well, I asked, I asked, I said, you know, there's not this equivalent word for reformed in your language. Is there an equivalent word for covenant? And he thought about it for like three seconds, and he's like, yeah, definitely. And and then I asked every other uh, black South African, most of whom spoke different languages, and I said, is there the equivalent word or concept? And they're immediately, yes, yes, yes. Like that was that was very evident, whether it had to do with business relationships or or marriage or something of that nature. There was this concept of a covenant, something stronger and more spiritual even than a contract. Uh, so so I thought that was really telling. And it teaches us what we should foreground in our discussions of the faith, especially in a missionary and an evangelistic setting. Uh, so, so, yeah, just food for thought and something to think about. Now, when I went to South Africa, one of the things that I was very closely paying attention to were race relations there and specifically apartheid. Uh, I'll be honest, I've heard of apartheid. I, I sort of know the general contours and outlines, but I've never really sat down to study it in more detail or depth. Thankfully, we did get to go to the apartheid museum while we were there. Uh, I wish I'd had at least two hours longer. Um, we spent a lot of time in the Nelson Mandela exhibit. And what was interesting about that is that worldwide, Mandela, or or Madiba, as, as he's nicknamed, is a celebrated figure as well he should be. But in South Africa, um, especially among Black Africans, there's a lot of conversation about the limits that Mandela placed when when he was negotiating the end of apartheid. And now 25 years out, people are asking, how much progress have we really made? And looking back at those negotiations and discussions and saying, there were some compromises there that shouldn't have been made and it's put us in a difficult position. And so it's one of those things that as a historian, you get used to all of these historic heroic figures from the past, when you sort of peel back the layers, when you listen to marginalized groups, when you hear what was actually going on during the time when they lived, well, they're not quite as heroic as maybe the history books or or in your in your in your, you know, junior high or high school class make them out to be. And it's the same with Nelson Mandela, not to take away from anything that he endured or or accomplished, but uh to say that there's still much more work that needs to be done. Um, to speak of apartheid, uh, for, for those of you who may not be as familiar, apartheid literally means separateness. And so this was a legalized system of racial segregation, not unlike but not identical to Jim Crow in the U.S., uh, it was based on white supremacy, and it grouped and categorized and ranked people, just like it does here. But in South Africa, there are some additional categories. So it goes white, Asian, colored, and black. And those middle groups, it's a bit muddled. So um, I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. But basically, what apartheid was meant to do was ensure that this minority group of white people had all the power socially, economically, and politically. It was in place legally from 1948 to 1994. Of course, there was a lot of stuff that happened before that, that basically um, they were living in an apartheid kind of uh, country, a segregated kind of country with 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 uh, imbalanced power dynamics long before 1948, but it got codified in that year. And then officially, the apartheid government was dismantled in 1994. But 
as I just mentioned, there's a lot of lingering effects uh, uh, of apartheid. It's only been 25 years since since the end of apartheid. As Akemeni said in our group, that was that was not that long ago. That was like Tuesday. So many folks I interacted with remarked on how they were looking at the U.S. because it's been so much longer since the fall of legalized apartheid in the U.S. You could look maybe at 1954, the Brown v. Board decision, or the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, Wherever you set the date, it's been longer than 25 years. Now, of course, we haven't made that much progress either. Um, but that was a perspective that I hadn't thought of before that, that, you know, however much room we have for improvement, it's just been chronologically a lot longer that Jim Crow has fallen than apartheid has fallen. And so South Africans sort of looking to the U.S. um, to see which way it's going to go, maybe not even to learn the right things to do, but perhaps to learn what not to do as well, that 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 might be a better way to, to learn from us. Um, But what struck me was in explaining the opposition that black South Africans faced, many of them said that people resisted racial justice efforts by saying that apartheid was so long ago. And I was just like, what? That was yesterday. Um, You still have people who are in the prime of their life who grew up under apartheid and remember the worst days. You have millennials who were born into apartheid and only saw it fall when they were teenagers. So it's just ludicrous to say that it was so long ago and that the country has made so much progress because it's only been a short amount of time. One other aspect of uh, race relations in South Africa that absolutely blew our minds was the, the, the whole idea of this group of people called colored. So in the U.S., we have black and white. Now, of course, there are more people groups than that, and... Um, There's a spectrum in society about how people are treated based on their skin complexion or perhaps their their nationality. But in apartheid South Africa, there was a specific group designated colored, and it has a very different connotation than it does here. Here, colored is a very old-fashioned term. At one point, black people used the word colored as in the NAACP, right? The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, meaning black in that context. Um, but now to say colored is a throwback term and and, and slightly offensive uh, to use in the U.S., but not so in South Africa. This group, as far as I can tell, and South Africans are going to have a much deeper, more nuanced perspective than I do, but as far as I could tell, um, this was essentially a, a group made up of almost any kind of mixed race or ethnicity person. So from what I understand, there was quite a large Asian population in South Africa at one point. Um, uh, the colored group of people oftentimes was uh, an Asian person and uh, a black or a white person who were mixed. And one of the mind-boggling things was that colored wasn't just about skin color, it was also about hair texture. And sort of the looser your hair, um, the easier it would be to be considered colored. Uh, it, it again, there's people with way more detail and nuance than than I'm able to 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 give. But I'm just giving the perspective of a fairly racially conscious person from the United States going to South Africa and really just having my mind blown at the complexities of the racial dynamics there with this third group and this third category. And it was not apparent to my eyes uh, what the difference was between some people who were considered black and some people who were considered colored because they would have, they would look very similar. And again, maybe it came down to hair texture. Um, but there, there is a big difference between uh, uh, light-skinned black people, as we would call them in the U.S., or colored as they would be in South Africa, and darker-skinned black South Africans. There was a, a, a clear delineation under apartheid to the point where they even lived in different places. And so white people lived in the cities, colored people in uh, certain neighborhoods or certain suburbs, and then black people in the townships or the rural areas. And so these were hard lines that were just, they, they were created. They're arbitrary, but they were strictly enforced. So that was 
massively eye-opening and revealing and depressing because what happened was this stratification essentially pit black and colored people against one another in terms of securing rights and economic opportunities while white people which they were still in a hyper minority they could kind of just sit back and watch all this the colored people i have a lot of uh sympathy for them uh based on our interactions i mean it seems pretty difficult if you're trying to be uh, uh racially conscious in in this kind of social arrangement because colored people are caught between two cultures and races they're not black they're not white they still have some perks and advantages of being white so a lot of colored people didn't simply want to identify as black because that would mean a loss of privilege and status and opportunity. And there's culture involved. So especially language, um, a lot of colored people speak Afrikaans. And so it's not as simple as just saying, oh, I'm black or, or I'm white. There's a whole culture that you grew up with to consider. Um, so I think it's going to be a real challenge for people who had been classified as colored to decide where they fit, and, and then even more complex, how they want to raise their children. Are they going to raise them as black? Are they going to raise them as right, white? Are they going to raise them as colored? Some other category or designation. I think that's still being worked out now, but it was just a, a humbling privilege to listen in on conversations and to get a little bit of firsthand exposure by talking to people who are considered colored. One quick story about this, um, the racial stratification so Cape Town is majority white, and we felt, I felt at least, the sort of racial dynamics in a much more palpable way over there than in Joburg, which is a much more diverse and cosmopolitan city. Others may have a different perspective, but I definitely um, was much more aware of the racial dynamics in Cape Town. So I'll just share with you one story that kind of encapsulates this whole dynamic between colored and white. So we were in downtown Cape Town, and we were coming back from the market, and we were walking back to our car. It's me and probably four other uh, black people, both from the U.S. and South Africa. Now, one of the things in South Africa, or at least Cape Town, is they, they have these parking lot attendants. These are folks who help you park your car. They watch it while you're away. You're supposed to tip them. Just kind of a low-paying job type of a thing. And we were walking back to our car and one parking lot attendant who we didn't know was just like getting off work and he was just like walking home on the sidewalk. And then he starts yelling at our parking lot attendant and they're going back and forth and it's getting kind of heated. And I'm just like, what is happening? Do they got beef? Do we need to, is something about to pop off? Do we need to duck and run? What's going on? Well, eventually it calms down and we ask our parking lot attendant, like, yo, man, what, what was that? And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. But this other guy, he thought that um, you guys, since you were walking with this light-skinned uh, person, that all of the other guys, and we're all darker-skinned black people, he thought that we were robbing this lighter-skinned person in our group. He he actually thought this person was white. This person is a light-skinned black person, and in, in the U.S., that's not even a question. But over there, he appeared white or at least colored, and this person who started yelling at our parking lot attendant in our group thought that we, as darker-skinned black people, were robbing this guy. We were going to take him to an ATM and force him to withdraw all, all his money or something. And so we... I'm still trying to wrap my head around this whole situation because it was just like playing out. And these are, this is a black person, right? So, so black people, uh, you know, we've so internalized this idea of race that even when it's our own people, you know, we, 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 we sort of do the work of white oppressors for them. Sometimes uh, we'll follow each other in the stores. We'll accuse each other of, of nefarious intentions. Right. Um, and, and, you know, that stuff happens in the U.S., of course, but over there, it was just so stark. Now, one more reflection. And it's a question, really, that I have. And the question is this. Have overseas missions been stolen from black people? So we were over there on a missions trip. Now, it was an atypical trip because we weren't doing the typical short-term missions work like painting a building or 
constructing houses or doing a backyard Bible study. We weren't doing that. This was a vision trip, and the idea was to get a vision for what kind of ministry we might do there in the future. So that's still up in the air uh, because so much of, of that part depends on the local people who live there and what they want to see done. But we're in conversation about what that might look like in the future. Still, this was a missions trip. But I hesitate to say that because of all the baggage that comes with the term missions. So when Europeans colonized various parts of the world throughout the past three to four centuries, um, from an indigenous perspective, you couldn't tell what was European and what was Christian. With Christian missions historically, you couldn't tell where colonialism ended and Christianity began. That's a massive problem. And it's not just part of the past, it's part of the present. Oftentimes, sharing the gospel uh, historically came with stealing resources and even stealing people, what the Bible calls man-stealing and, and what became chattel slavery. And the black Africans we encountered, even in the 21st century, were so used to seeing white missionaries that they automatically equated missionary with white. And if I'm honest, I often do this too. Unintentionally, I have coded missions as white because it's always been an overwhelmingly white and European endeavor. And of course, that's for several historical reasons, right? So first, black and brown people worldwide are often consumed with survival and don't have the bandwidth to think about stopping school and career or disrupting family life and going abroad to do missions. Historically, colonialism and imperialism went to majority black and brown countries and extracted resources, started wars. They, they subjugated people through superior technology. And so all of that came, and inside that package was Christianity. And so you can imagine how people would receive white Christian missionaries and, and sort of the baggage that, that missions activity in general has, right? Also, black and brown people worldwide, we don't have the same access to financial resources as white or European people have had historically and in the present day. So for this trip, each of the participants, we had to raise $1,000, it's really a small sum given the expense of the trip as a whole, but not many people in general, much less in racial or ethnic minority groups, can simply ask family members or acquaintances or even their church members for that kind of money. In addition, when people do make a financial investment in you, it's usually to see you uh, get some sort of financial independence at some point, right? Somebody will pay for your college tuition with the idea that you're going to get your education and then you're going to go get a, a good paying job so that you can support yourself and maybe even help support uh, the, the family who helped get you through college. So the idea of giving someone money to go and do missions where the only return is maybe um, maybe a conversion, right? We don't ultimately even have control over that. And of course, that's that's an that's a return with eternal rewards, right? But it doesn't help your family necessarily put food on the table. It's just a different kind of investment. And so with a people or people groups that are so used to living on the margins, so used to working really hard just to survive, the idea of making some sort of financial investment in missions isn't the first thing or the highest priority. Um, and it's not to say that every black family is poor or that for poor folks don't invest in the kingdom of God. But again, it's about survival. When you have very little and you're still facing racial discrimination, money often has to go to causes and investments that, is, that are going to bring relief to these day-to-day -day struggles. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why missions remains an overwhelmingly white Christian endeavor. But more to the point, missions has become a byword in our society and abroad. Missions, as it has been practiced, is virtually synonymous with white people and with all the stuff that comes with that, like colonialism and exploitation and appropriation. I mean, just think about all those pictures of white people posing with impoverished black children in Africa. It becomes a form of, uh, it becomes a form of what they call poverty porn where you're putting human beings on display for a dual purpose. One, 
It's to say, oh, look at these poor black and brown children. We should feel sorry for them. And two is to say, look at how virtuous I am, sacrificing my time and my money to come over here and serve these poor forgotten people. It's one of the most vile forms of virtue signaling, and at the end of the day, it objectifies people. Instead of showcasing the beauty and diversity and richness and resilience of the people we encounter, we use them as props to display our own piety. Now, this isn't even an entirely white people thing either. We as Westerners and as Americans have immense privilege. Everywhere we go, even as black Americans, people are aware of what's happening in the richest and most militarily powerful nation on earth. In this sense, the majority of the world operates as a functional minority in relation to the power of the United States. And so it's easy for any of us, no matter our race or ethnicity, it's easy for us as Americans to go abroad and act like we know what's best for the world. And that was something I had to consciously kind of remind myself of and try to stop myself in those occasions when I wanted to jump to conclusions or what I thought would be solutions. So what do we do? How do we recover a sense of Christian mission abroad? Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that missions is a God thing, not a white or a European thing. The most famous passage on missions, Matthew 28, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's called the Great Commission. And Jesus didn't say it to Europeans. He said it to all of his followers. There's also Acts 1.8. Jesus says to the disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Again, Jesus says this not to white people, but to anyone who follows him. Really, the entire biblical story is about the ever-expanding mission of God from one couple, Adam and Eve, to one family, Abraham and Sarah and their children, to one nation, the people of Israel, and then to the Gentiles and anyone who would believe. And finally, as we read in the book of Revelation, to people of every tribe and language and people and nation. The charge to preach the gospel in word and in deed is a God thing, and thus it belongs to every single Christian. It's not a white thing or a European thing. Missions is a Christian thing. But missions has such a bad name that I wonder if we as black people have allowed the very concept to be stolen from us. Black people, as with really any marginalized group, are uniquely positioned for effective missionary work. We understand what it means to cross cultures because as minorities, we have to cross cultures every day in every area of life from school to work to pop culture. We also understand what it means not to have power. We know what it's like to experience injustice and we can empathize with those who are on the receiving end of someone else's sin. As people of color, we understand racial discrimination in a way that most white people do not. And as people of color, we represent the majority of the world. Representation matters. For the messengers of Christianity to have brown skin like you do means that Christianity is not the white man's religion. It's a global religion for all peoples of all kinds. Jesus is a savior not just of white people or Western countries, but for whomever would believe in him as Lord and Savior. There were some ministers from Gambia that we encountered, and they are yearning for black Americans to come to their townships and villages because they're all black in, in, their, in those countries, in those spaces, but the missionaries they see are almost always white. In conclusion, I hope that there's never another year in my life when I don't travel abroad to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I hope I get to do it every year. I don't know what it looks like, whether it'll be long-term or short-term, whether I'll be teaching or preaching or some other way of contributing, but I do know that I've got that bug, that restlessness that calls me to other people and other places and other cultures to talk about Jesus. And I bet some of you listening, no matter your race or ethnicity, I bet some of you listening have that restlessness too. 
And I encourage you to approach your church or your denomination and see what opportunities there are for serving abroad. For those of you who, like me, sort of put Christian missions out of your mind because you thought it was too loaded with negative baggage or it was just a thing that white people did, I urge you to search the scriptures and reconsider. The way missions has been done is not the way it always has to be done. In fact, it may be up to us as racial and ethnic minorities the world over to reform and redefine missions for the 21st century. My dream and hope is that we have black and minority-led missions organizations that don't fall prey to the same shortcomings of historically white mission organizations. If those minority-led mission agencies are already out there, please let me know. Share them with me, and I'll share them with this Footnotes audience. You can email me at footnotespod1 at gmail.com and share those resources. In the meantime, please prayerfully consider giving some of your time and your treasure to global missions. Some of us are sent. We're the ones who need to go abroad and spend time with people across cultures. And some of us are senders. We give financially and we give our prayers and other forms of support to help send the sent. The point is, whether you are sent or a sender, all of us have a role to play in Christian missions. It's not a white thing. It's not a colonial thing. It's God's mission, and we're privileged to be part of it. That's it for this week. Remember to support The Witness Foundation. Visit thewitnessfoundation.co, that's thewitnessfoundation.co, and help us raise a million dollars for Black Christian Ministries. Like my author page, that's facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby one. And I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, both at Jamar Tisby. Remember, you can contact me via email, footnotespod and the number one at gmail.com, footnotespod one at gmail.com. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness Podcast Suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?